Bibles to the book of First Peter. Pardon me one minute. First Peter chapter two, and we're going to begin in verse eleven. I think if we could just correct that up on the board, not in terms of our reading. And my my verse is from thirteen to seventeen. That's my main portion. But I wanted to read read verse eleven through because I think it fits the context of what we're going to speak about today. So in verse 11, we read this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to the governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you once again for this honor and privilege we have to sit before your word. We thank you, God, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your grace. We thank you for your word, which, O Lord, you have preserved for generations. It is pure, it is holy, it is tried like gold and silver. O Lord, and your word speaks to us. It is food for our soul, and it it reveals to us your will. And I pray, dear God, that as we study this passage O Holy Spirit, illuminate for us the passage before us. Give us divine insight, O Lord. May we behold wondrous things from your law. And more importantly, may we have humble spirits to be instructed by your word um, in this passage today. Father, I ask for myself that you anoint my mind, my heart, and my lips, that everything I say and do would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a holiday weekend, and um, obviously, if you're working, so you have a day off tomorrow, and we're celebrating the 4th of July. Today's the 3rd of July, and, and, and you would think, you know, it's an interesting thing, you would think everybody knew what the 4th of July is, right? There was recently a guy on, on uh, YouTube, I don't know if you've ever seen him, I don't even know, I can't remember his name, but he went around, uh, um, I, think it was, I think it was Malibu Beach or Redondo Beach, uh, one of the beaches in... in the West Coast out in California, and he, he's interviewing people. Do you know what the 4th of July is? And, and I think maybe one or two people actually knew what the 4th of July was. Most people have no clue. I think it's just another day to get together and drink beer and look at fireworks. Uh, the 4th of July is the uh, birth of our country. It, is the, uh, um, it commemorates uh, July 4th, 1776, when the United States declared independence from Great Britain as a colony, 
or as colonies and, um, and wrote their grievances against King George of England. Well, the birth of our nation, when we look back on it, can be looked at in several different ways. For one thing, it was rooted in self-will and determination. For years, the colonists acted in good faith with England. However, after the French-Indian War, England amassed a tremendous war debt, and uh, they asked the colonists to pay their fair share of taxes and help bear the responsibility. The colonists were none too happy with the taxes levied, and little by little, as each tax was levied, the colonists resisted and rebelled more and more and more. And so there were a series of taxes and eventually led to what we call the Intolerable Acts, um, as it was seen from the colonists' perspective. And it basically made life very difficult. The government of England became very oppressive on the part of the colonists. And so they protested, and they simply demanded that they ought not to be taxed without representation. They demanded that they have an equal voice in Parliament to represent their needs, but as colonists, they didn't have that right, and England wouldn't grant it. There were two events that tipped the scale towards war, and that was the Boston Massacre, which was um, happened in the, in the winter of 1775, I believe, or uh, 74, rather, um, and when that happened, um, it was basically a bunch of protesters in Boston who were provoking and instigating the British military. We don't know what gun went off first, but the guns were shot and some colonists were left dead. And that created a massive emotional upheaval among the colonies and the people rebelled even more. And then in Concord and Lexington, the colonists who had amassed uh, a cache of weapons and muskets to defend themselves against the British military um, was discovered by the British military. And so the British military comes to seize the guns. And when they come to seize the guns, I guess in the words of Charlton Heston, it was over his cold dead body. And that was the shot heard around the world. And that began the American Revolution, which eventually the colonists won. And here we are today. And so one of the questions that we face when we look back at July 4th, we look back at the American Revolution is, was it a just war? Ah, that's a good question, isn't it? When we look at it from a biblical perspective, not an American perspective, from a biblical perspective, was it a just war? That's a, that's a dicey question, right? Because... I had to face that question in college. In fact, I had to write a paper when I was an undergrad, and my paper was, was the American war a just war? Was it justified? Um, were the Americans simply rebels who, who just couldn't cooperate with England, and England was a good and benefactor, and, and, and uh, it was the Americans who really were just a, a, a nation of rebels, or... or at the other flip side of it, was it that Great Britain was really tyrannical and they abused their authority when they pushed the American colonists over the edge? I'm not going to answer that question today. I'll let, I'll let the smart people determine that. I had my paper, I wrote it, and I'll discuss it with someone on another occasion. But that's not the point. I'm not here to answer that question. But what it does do is asks us the question... How do we deal with government? 
Because ever since the American Revolution, one thing it laid down, and, and I, will, I will say this to my answer about the American Revolution. Regardless of whether you think it was a just war or not, one thing you cannot deny is that God in his providence willed it to happen. Not only that, but God willed the American colonists to succeed. I can tell you, I, I, my, my major was history in, in, when I was in college, and I studied, the American, I studied American history in depth. And one thing you cannot deny, especially when you look around the American Revolution, it is undeniable the sovereignty of God that was involved. What do I mean by that? The American colonists were had no chance of beating the British military. The British Navy and the British Army were the strongest military power in the world. Great Britain was at its zenith as an empire. Not a country, an empire. It was the, the empire of the world at that time. For the colonists, who really were a bunch of ragtag poor farmers who picked up their muskets, it, it, it should have been, it, it, it's like, you know, it's like the New England Patriots, you know, uh, um, against the worst team in football. What's the worst team in football? Anybody? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, the, the Jets. That is correct. It's like New England Patriots against the Jets. It's a, how could they, it was, it, if the Jets won, won and defeated them, it would be a tremendous upset. Well, the American Revolution was a tremendous upset. It should have never happened. But when you study the things that took place and, and how things, events fell in, you say, how could that possibly be? You see the hand of God, and you see the hand of God that America is probably historically one of the most prosperous and successful and blessed nations that ever existed. Does it have its problems? Absolutely. We've had nothing but problems. And we're a fighting people. Because of our roots, we've been fighting with each other for 200 odd years since the country has been born. And right now, when you see all the, the bickering and the back and forth political, this is nothing new under the sun. This has been happening since the birth of our country. You can go back even to 1783 and in the early, late 1700s, early 1800s, and, and American politics was even more vicious than it is today. That's, that's our country. That's our history. But the question I bring into all of this is, what about, Amer what about us as Christians? Are we Americans first or are we Christians first? Are we, what is our priority? What is, what is the most important thing to us? Uh, what, what is our identity? Because even in the hostile political climate right now, and everybody has strong political opinions, what, what is more important to you? What is your identity? Do you identify as a Christian first or a Republican, a Christian or a Democrat? What is your primary identity? That's a good question, right? Because I have seen many Christians in the last few years put their political views above their own Christian identity. I've seen division and partisanship dividing the church. And clearly we can have strong discussions and debates about issues, and we ought to, but to put a political party or a political leader above the church and Christianity and descend into the pigsty of what the world does is clearly unbiblical. And so with that, I, I bring us to this text today to look at this question, to look at this question of how we as Christians are to live 
and think about our role as Americans? Well, the first thing we need to really understand is understanding who we are, understanding our identity in Christ. And that brings me to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I want to start with that because Peter is addressing the church. He's addressing Christians who live in the Roman Empire as sojourners and exiles. Those are two terms that mean two different things. A sojourner is someone who willingly goes on a journey to a foreign country. So if I go on a missionary journey, let's say I decide to go on a short-term missionary trip, I don't know, to uh, Belarus with Pastor Ed next year, and I go there for a month. If I go there, I am a sojourner in Belarus. I am, I'm not a citizen of Belarus. I'm a temporary uh, um, person who's dwelling in that country. I'm journeying through. I'm there for a temporary season, but I am not Belarusian. I'm American. And, and as soon as my trip is over, I'm going home. But while I'm in that land, I respect the values and cultures of that land. I live by the laws of that land because I'm just passing through and I'm, I'm not a citizen of that country. And another term there used is exile. An exile is someone who against their will has been brought to a foreign land and forced to live against their will. The closest thing that we could think of with exiles is Israel. Israel um, was exiled to Babylon. Remember in the Old Testament when God brought judgment upon Judah, uh, the southern kingdom in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire invaded uh, Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and took all the Jews back to Babylon as exiles. They were They were living in a land against their will. They didn't want to live there, but it was God's judgment upon them that that was to be decreed for a period of time. So we call that the exile period. And I and I think Peter is is has this kind of mindset in, in his head because in chapter five later on he refers to Rome as Babylon. He said, "I'm writing to you who are in Babylon." And he's not speaking of literal Babylon. But Rome represents Babylon. The world represents Babylon. We're foreigners. In other words, we don't belong here. Our citizenship is different. Earlier in chapter 2, he says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why don't you stop and think about that? We are a nation, a holy nation, set apart from God. This was the same language that was appropriated to Israel in the Old Testament when God called them in the book of Exodus chapter 19. Here we see this being appropriated to the New Testament church, realizing that we are Israel. We're spiritual Israel, both Jew and Gentile, and we are in a temporal exile. We're on a sojourn in this world where you don't really belong here. This is the mindset, what we refer to as the pilgrim mindset, that was written about in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this in Hebrews eleven, thirteen. It says, These all died in faith, referring to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Sarah, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Again, the same language. For people who speak thus make it clear 
that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see what is being taught here? Abraham and Sarah were called out of Ur of the Chaldees. If the Ur of the Chaldees was their homeland and they were sojourners in Canaan, they could have went back to Ur of the Chaldees if they wanted to go home. But their home was something much bigger. They were looking to a heavenly country, a heavenly land, and that holy city, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. That was their home. The New Testament clarifies in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. So what we must understand is that we're dual citizens, brothers and sisters. Your primary identity, your primary citizenship is not as Americans, You have an American passport, and that's valuable, but you have a greater passport. As we talked about the invisible church, you have an invisible passport, and that's to the kingdom of God. That's to that heavenly city. And and we serve a mighty king who's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he rules over all, and he is righteous, and he is just, and his law is perfect. We have to remember that because that supersedes every other identity and reality in this world. We're only here temporarily. We will be in heaven or in the new, in the new heavens and new earth forever. So the squabbles we have here, and there are times to have squabbles, are going to pass. And we ought not to get our emotions and our, and our hearts so bent out of shape over the political squabbles of this current world. When we do, we've lost focus of who we are. But that doesn't mean we just say, ah, to hell with the world. Because we're still here. And Jesus says, you are the light and salt of the earth. And the salt loses its saltiness, then what good, what good is it? Good for nothing but the dung pile, the Lord said. So what does that say of Christians? Are we good enough, just good for the dung pile or... Or are we are we living salty lives? Are we shining our light? Are we, are we reflecting the goodness and the grace and the glory of God to the world around us? When the, it, when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, listen to what Jeremiah wrote to them. Because they were, they were disheartened. They were disenfranchised. They were broken. They didn't know what to do. How would you feel if all of a sudden, let's just say China invaded America and took you as a captive back to live in China against your will, it would be awful. What do I do? I miss my homeland. Well, listen to what the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel, as God spoke through Jeremiah, rather. In Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, we read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now listen to this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and, and, and do not decrease. Do not decrease. 
But look at what it says, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Live. Don't stop living. Live your life and, in, and make the best of your situation and seek the welfare of the place you're in exile. Didn't Daniel do that? Daniel, Daniel made the absolute best of his situation. He sought the welfare of pagan kings. And in seeking their welfare, he sought his own welfare. This is why where it is told to us to pray for those in authority. To pray for those in, that are in places of uh, kings and rulers. Why? Because in their welfare, we find our welfare. And so we ought to seek, we ought to seek to influence the world and influence our system for good and righteousness. And we ought to. You see, the real war is not among men, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. The real war we have to see is within. That's why Paul says, I mean, Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Passions there mean strong desires. We can be very passionate sometimes about politics, and that passion could boil over into ungodly behavior. We may say things and act in a way that's unbecoming of Christians. I know I've been guilty of it, and I'm sure every one of you here has been guilty of it at one point or another. Rather, we're told to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We shouldn't be called evildoers, or we shouldn't give the world a reason to call us evildoers. But act in an honorable and dignified way, so much so that we are blameless. So that when Christ returns and the knees bow and the tongues confess, they can give glory to God. Not because we did evil, but because we did good. And we were honorable and dignified. Then every mouth will be shut. And so the first point in understanding in our interaction with the world is understanding that the real battle is not without, it's within. It's bringing in check those sinful passions and impulses, living and remembering who we are. We're children of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We serve a king with a great, greater purpose than the purposes of the nations. Amen? And remember, the nations are a drop in the bucket to our Lord. Just remember that. All the trials and travails we're seeing right now, we're kind of just, we've been almost forgot about what's going on in Russia. Just this week, a missile hit a shopping mall and killed 1,000 Ukrainians instantly. It wasn't even spoken about on the news. Of course, we're still caught up with Supreme Court decisions. 1,000 people obliterated by a missile. We might be on the verge of World War III, and if we were... You know what the Lord says? It's a drop in the bucket to me. What we see as monumental, God sees as just another flash in the pan. We have to see things from God's perspective and be kingdom-minded and kingdom-focused. And that'll keep us centered in this world. Second point that I want to look at is we need to have a right attitude towards the government. We need to have a right attitude towards the government. Notice what it says in verse 15. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor is supreme or to the governor is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice twice, Peter reiterates the point. Don't be an evildoer, be a do-gooder. Do good. Put to silence those who want to... Listen, there are plenty of people... You don't have to look far. Go on Twitter and Facebook and look at all of the pejoratives and insults the world points at Christians. Oh, it's endless. I, 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 I read some things last week and they were horrific. Absolutely horrific. Some of the things I read that unbelievers were saying about Christians because of the Roe v. Wade being overturned. I read things and it, 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 it was bad. So the question is, do we give them a reason and to justify speaking about us that way? Or do we act in such a way that their ignorance will be put to, put to, to silence? That their, their words will be put to shame? How do we act? How do we uh, carry ourselves? And so we see that the first thing here, and, and, and by the way, it tells us it, it is God's will for us that we should do good. Okay? But we ought to be submissive to the government. Sometimes the government is going to make laws that we don't agree with. That's part of life. How do we react to that? Do we rebel? Do we resist? Do we break the law? I want you to just give a little background here in verses 13 through 15. Remember who the emperor in Rome was at this time? It was Caesar Nero. This is probably in the mid-50s A.D. when Peter is writing this. Nero would have been in his early 20s. Nero came to power. Nero came to power when he was only 17 years old. Nero was, was by far one of the worst emperors. And, and with the downfall of his reign came the downfall of the Julian-Claudian dynasty. He basically brought his whole family down to the grave. He was a man full of debauchery, full of wickedness and evil. He was a, he was a narcissist of the umpteenth degree. He was probably bipolar uh, with additional mental diseases. And, and I'm not saying this in a negative way towards those who suffer with mental illness. But back then there was no medication. And if you had all the power in the world and you were bipolar and you had no way to constrain or limit uh, and everybody told you you were a god and they worshipped you, you could only imagine what craziness ensued. He killed his own mother and he killed two of his wives. In, in, his, in, in his second wife, in a rage, he was 15 years old. 15-year-old girl who's pregnant and he kicked her in her stomach and killed her by killing her baby and her in the process. This is a man who took pleasure in murdering people and killing people. We know that there was the great fire in Rome that eventually burned down almost two-thirds of the city, and he cast the blame on the Christians. A lot of people were looking at him, how could this happen under Nero? And so what, he has to find a scapegoat. And he knew that the political climate in Rome was very anti-Christian. People hated Christians. Things don't change. People were just like that back then as they are today. And, 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 
And he says, it's the Christians. They set fire to Rome. And guess what? Everyone believed it. Everyone believed it because they hated the Christians so much that they were vilified and they obviously uh, agreed with it. And the Christians were persecuted awfully. He used Christians as human torches to line the road going up to his palace. Threw them to wild beasts, you name it. Now, he had not gotten to this point when Peter is writing this. Nevertheless, he's a tyrant. He's a maniac. And Peter says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil. This is revolutionary. When you think about it, he could be telling the Christians you should fight this ungodly and unholy government. Pick up your swords. Remember Peter cut the, sword, cut the ear off of Malchus? How come he's not telling them to pick up swords and fight back? He says, be subject to them. Be submissive to them. In other words, be peaceful, law-abiding citizens. Now, obviously... We know the scripture tells us that we ought not to submit to the government when the government asks us to sin against God, right? So if the government asks us to do something that's contrary to the will of God, we ought not to do it. And so he's not saying worship Caesar as God and offer incense on the altar of Caesar for your annual sacrifice. That would be apostasy. I think that that's, goes without saying, right? And so the Christians incur judgment because they wouldn't worship Caesar eventually. But in all the areas that where, where the government is not asking you to sin, obey. Even if you're fine, it's unfair or unjust, obey. Listen to what Paul says in Romans, and I believe that Paul and Peter are thinking along the same lines. There's an echo here. Romans 13, 1-5, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Get that? The governments that exist, exist because God put them there. Yes, we have democracy, people vote, but who moves upon the hearts of the people to vote a certain way? God. Every power is put in place by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, verse 2, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. When you fight against the government and you don't have a just cause, you're fighting against God and you will be judged. Both a temporal judgment, you'll get arrested and go to jail, and also, or get killed. And secondly, God will judge you. God will deal with you. And again, Paul says, for rules, rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear that one who is in authority, then do good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant. This is something we have to realize, is that when we look at the separation of church and state, that's a man-made concept. God is sovereign both over the church and the state. The pastor in the pulpit is the servant of God, and the, the magistrate is the servant of God. God rules over both spheres. It's not as if in here we're under God's rule, and out there it's under Satan's rule. Yes, Satan has been given a certain amount of authority, but God is sovereign over Satan. Satan doesn't install rulers. God installs rulers, and he brings them down. There is one and ultimate authority, and that's God. And we must remember that God 
is sovereign over all. Remember what the Lord said to Pontius Pilate? He says, don't you know I have authority to let you live or kill you? What did Jesus say? You would have no authority if my Father didn't give it to you. The Lord wasn't disturbed by that statement of Pilate. He laughed. (laughs) You're here because I let you be here, he's thinking. But there's also a reminder of the responsibility of the government. The legitimate government, biblically speaking, is a government that praises those who do right, rewards those who do good, and, 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 and that's an example for others to do good. And, and, and also, it's that government has responsibility to punish evildoers. When government fails to punish the wrongdoers, they disobey God's purpose for existence. And they will be held accountable as well. Every ruler of this world, if they do not rule in a just fashion, they will stand before the king on judgment day and give an account. We live in a time where authority is challenged in every sphere of life, my brothers and sisters. We see it from the top down. We see it in the government. We see it in the government where both political parties cannot accept outcomes that don't suit their vision, and there's protests and rebellions and all kinds of stuff. But we see it in every sphere of life. It's, it's from the bottom up, really. It starts in the home. Right? Where's the order in the home? We see, we see uh, wives who disregard their husband's headship in the home, children who have no respect and no, uh, no regard for their parents' authority. Citizens do not honor and respect uh, those who, uh, who are in um, positions of, of policing. Uh, we don't respect authority of pastors. We're, we're in a society that is moving closer and closer towards anarchy. And eventually that leads to disintegration of society. As Christians, we understand there's authority in every sphere of life, every human institution. God is a God of order, not of chaos. God is a God of order, and He sets authority to keep order in all spheres of life. Here's the the parenthetical statement here. It's very hard to be subject to authority. You know why? By nature, we're rebellious. And on top of that, the layer of our American heritage, we're, we're really the descendants of rebels, right? We don't like being told what to do by anyone. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? I'm independent. I'm free. But notice, notice what it says here. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution. We do it for the Lord's sake. We do it for the honor of God. We don't do it for other people. You don't do it for yourself. You don't even do it for society. You do it for the Lord's sake. Listen to what John Piper says. Christians do not submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it or because they have compliant personalities or because the institutions have coercive powers. But we do not look first at ourselves to see what we feel like doing, nor do we look at the institution like the government to see if there are consequences for not submitting. We look 
first to God. We consult God about every institution and we submit for His sake. I want you to think about that. Now finally, in the third point, live as free men. The 4th of July celebrates freedom and independence. One thing we're never... And I'm not going to get too deep in this. This Brother Eric has a sermon coming on this. This is just a preview. But notice what it says in verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What, what a paradox there. You're a servant, but you're free. Servants are slaves. What, what freedom do you have as a slave? You, you have no rights. You belong to another. You're the property of the king. We're servants of God. We are his property. We are bought by his blood, but yet we have freedom. We're free slaves. That's a, that's a paradox. We're servants, but free. How do we, how do we understand that? But we have been set free from the power of sin by the blood of Jesus. We have been set free from the power of death by the cross. We have been set free from the the power and the impulses of the world and of the passions of the flesh by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are reckoned dead to sin and alive to Christ. So we have freedom. We have freedom. We've been set free. We we no longer have to earn our favor with God and salvation. And by grace you're saved. And by grace we're going to heaven. Not by works. But that doesn't mean you're free to do evil. Remember that. Freedom is never an excuse for evil. The First Amendment, when it was crafted, wasn't designed so that the founders thought, oh, you're free to curse. You're free to use profanity. You're free to use pornography. You're free to do whatever you want and say whatever you want. You're free to uh, uh, use abusive speech. You're free to use your words to hurt people. It was all bound up in freedom of political speech to oppose tyrannical governments. And it was freedom of speech in religious speech. Freedom to do good. And they had a biblical understanding We're free to serve God. You see, before you were Christian, you were slaves to sin. I was a slave to sin. You couldn't serve God. Christ set us free so we can serve God. That's the freedom we have, to serve God and live the way we were intended to. And so while America affords us great freedoms and liberties, we live, and it's true, we live in one of the freest countries in the world. There is no other nation in the world where you will find the freedom and liberties America has. You go to any other country, rules are much stricter, laws are much more uh, um, harsh, penalties are harsher. I mean, you go across the pond and you start from England into Europe and as soon as you get to the Middle East into Asia, it gets worse the further you go east. We have great freedom. Do you use that freedom for good or evil? That's the question. With 4th of July coming, Independence Day, the freedom that we have, do you use your freedom to serve God or do you use your freedom to sin? Do you use your freedom to preach the gospel, to proclaim good, to serve others by serving God? 
Or do you use your freedom to serve yourself and to live for yourself? What do you use your freedom for? We may not have that freedom forever. We're free in Christ, but the freedom we experience in America may not always be there. I believe that I will live long enough to see when those freedoms will be taken away. And some of you who are younger will definitely experience it. How then shall we live? Peter leaves us with four instructions. Four instructions. Verse 17. This is the takeaway. Love. I'm sorry. Honor everyone. or Honor all men. Here's the first takeaway here. This means we are to show a certain level of decency and respect and honor to all people, both good and evil. doesn't matter whether you like someone or don't like them. It doesn't matter what their politics are. It doesn't matter if they're a believer or unbeliever. There is a common respect that we as Christians should show to all human beings. It's a courtesy. It's a, a special way of... We should deal with people in such a way the way Christ dealt with people Christ dealt with all people and he was a gentle soul. He was harsh with the Pharisees, but he was gentle with everyone else. We ought to be respectful. We may have disagreements and you're okay. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to challenge people who have different views than you, but do it with respect and dignity. Show everyone a common respect. When I see the discourse of Christians in recent years, I, I had to block certain people on Facebook. You know that? People I like, people that are my friends, people that are Christians, because they, they comment on things and they, their discourse is so... It, it's not, not anything but Christian or respectful or dignified. What do we do? We go into the pigsty with the pigs? Is that what we do? We're held to a higher standard. Secondly, so we know how we deal with everyone, well, unbelievers, love the brotherhood. So now this is different. We honor people. We, we show honor and respect to people who are not Christians. But the church we love. Speaking of the church, we show not only a sense of courtesy and respect, but we go a step further and we have the phileo love, the self-sacrificing love, the affection for one another. That's the love that binds us together as Christians that is something you don't love the world. You don't love those who are unbelievers, but you love the church. That means our priority is our Christian brothers and sisters above everyone else. Thirdly, we fear God. What Peter says, fear God. We may have a common respect for human beings, a special love by our brothers, but when it comes to God, He is the only one we must fear. Luke 12, 4 through 7, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I warn you of whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Are not one of them forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you're of more value than the sparrows. Fear God. Don't fear man, fear God. The fear of man is a snare. But the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And finally, 
honor the king. I want you to stop there for a minute and think about this. It's, it, it got, Peter makes this progression and then goes right back to the beginning. The same honor that we show and respect to all human beings, that's exactly what the king deserves. Just the, mutual, the common respect and honor we show to any other human being. Notice, we fear God, but we honor the king. We don't fear the king. We only fear God. Remember, this, was, this is a time when Caesar thought he was a god. And Peter is writing in such a way to remind the church of something very important. The king is just a man like you and me. The magistrate is a human being. Treat the magistrate with a human respect, but don't fear him. Fear God. God is God, and the king is not. I think that that's very instructive. And so when you really think about it, it goes like this. Peter wrote it in this way, but if you want to look at the natural progression, it's honor men, honor the king. They're just men. Love the church and fear God. When you order your life that way, you won't have any problems. Your conduct will be good and all those who want to say evil about you will be put to shame. So let me close here with this question. Was the American Revolution justifiable? I'll let you decide that. I don't intend to answer that question. But I would say this. I don't think there should be another revolution. And if there was, Christians should have nothing to do with it. We need to remember who we are. Our nation is in a state of civil strife and there may be nothing we could do about it, but the Bible calls us to be peacemakers. And so I leave you with three things. Whoever the president or the governor or any other ordained leader is, show them the decency and respect you would show to any other human being. You may agree, you could respectfully disagree, but submit to the governing authorities for the sake of Christ. Secondly, do not engage with the worldly tactics and worldly wisdom in dealing with those we disagree with. Colossians 4, 5, 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the most best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then thirdly, use the freedom that you've been given to serve God with all your heart. Serve Him and serve Him with joy. And you truly understand what freedom is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this word today. And I do thank you in your sovereignty and providence that uh, we are Americans today. And although our history has ups and downs, I thank you that in this time in history, you've allowed us to live here, to enjoy the prosperity of this country and the freedom of this country. And we pray for America we pray, Father God, for our leaders. We pray for our president. We pray for the Congress, for the Senate, the Supreme Court, for our governor, for our mayors, for our local legislation. We pray, dear God, that they would, they would rule in fear of you, that they would understand that they are servants of you. And whether they believe in you or not, I pray that they would acknowledge and realize that eventually open their eyes. May they believe. May they understand you. May they come to your word. 
And I pray, Father God, for our country as a whole, which has descended into the moral abyss of darkness. So many people's hearts are hardened and minds are darkened in sin and wickedness. I pray there'd be great revival, but I pray it would begin within the church. I pray that Christians would be revived. I pray that my heart would be revived. I pray that our church would be revived. For the praise of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.